Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show, Priya Satya, Professor of History at Stanford and author of the new book, Time's Monster, How History Makes History. Priya, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. So congratulations on the new book. Uh, Who or what is Time's Monster? Well, Time's Monster refers to um, an idea, um, a a particular view of history that emerges in the 18th century and in which history is, um, it emerges as sort of an ethical idiom, as a a branch of knowledge that can help people become more virtuous. You know, if you study history, you'll You'll, you'll have better ethics. And there's such good intentions behind that new understanding of history. Um, and yet it turns out to be a monster, um, <laughs> as you see in this book, because it sort of exceeds the control of those who invent it and winds up enabling all kinds of uh, harmful activity. And what I focus on in the book is the way it enables um, the, the, the history of the British Empire. Yeah, you twin this history of histories, as you say there, with the history of the British Empire. Uh, what was it that made you choose that as your case study? Well, I, I've always been a historian of Britain and uh, the British Empire, and I think of them as sort of a conjoint subject. So, um, and, I, and a lot of the key Enlightenment thinkers who are um, assembling this idea of history are actually um, doing it against the backdrop of of conversations that are already unfolding about um, the ethical merit of some of the steps that are being taken um, to create this empire. I mean, it's happening in the 18th century. There's already a conflict in the colonies. The British are conquering um, in South Asia. So there are scandals already, and these conversations are unfolding against that backdrop and help people sort of move forward with imperial practices, even despite those qualms. Yeah, before we talk about those uh, elements, uh, on a more personal level, you grew up in California. What was it that made you uh, want to study British history in the first place? Oh, wow, that's an interesting question. Um, Well, I come from a, my my family are from a, a small place in, well, my both sides of my family were affected by the history of um, British colonialism in India, and um, I have, you know, ancestors who were um, anti-colonial activists who were jailed, you know, for their anti-colonialism. And I grew up hearing those stories, and um, and then sitting in the United, you know, my parents I'm, uh, came to the United States, and I was born and raised here, but. Um, I wanted to be a historian, and um, I I felt that as someone situated in the United States, the the most it would be helpful for me with the perspective I had to be a historian of of Britain and the British Empire, and that it was one way I could help dispel myths that I felt were still enabling a lot of um, imperialistic practices in the United States in which I came of age. So that was like the first uh, Persian Gulf War. So, you know, I was, my decision making was shaped by, by that American history at that time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting thinking about the British Empire closer to home. Obviously, uh, the uh, parents of the uh, vice president elect, Kamala Harris, uh, were yes. both born within the British Empire. Uh, what impact yes. do you think that that will have on her worldview as vice president? 
Well, I've, I've written a couple of articles about this um, in the media, um, sort of hoping that, you know, we can, I mean, I think the, the progressive anti-colonial past of her parents is something that we should, you know, use as leverage um, to, to kind of encourage her to have uh, the most um, progressive outlook she can. I, I don't think it's clear from, um, you know, all her uh, political decisions and her career, you know, if, 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 she, if she is as progressive as she might be, given where um, her parents were coming from. But I think it's, it's an important history to keep in mind and to keep invoking, um, you know, to, and, and that's how you can use history to make new history. Yes, one of the interesting things about this book is that you, as a historian, going back and looking at the historians within the British Empire, um, particularly in the 19th century and early 20th century, what role did uh, some of those figures play in justifying empire? Well, you see um, consistently from the 18th century you know, through the 20th century that historians were very often... Um, the people actually making decisions about uh, imperial governance, or they were, you know, whispering in the ears of those who were making those decisions. And um, so whether it's, you know, um, someone like Henry Maine, right, who's a historian and a jurist in the second half of the 19th century, who's part of the law council, the legislative council in India, and he's there to deal with the mess after this massive Indian rebellion in 1857, 58, and um, you see him making arguments there that, you know, we've inherited a certain situation. We cannot make dramatic changes. We have to, you know, kind of stand by our mistakes as well. And these are arguments about history that say, you know, we're all feeling very uncomfortable about what we're doing, but we need to set aside those qualms because um, we uh, are instruments of, of a history that we have to serve. And the British Empire is here to create progress and it's going to be painful and, and you have to keep a stiff upper lip and, and endure it. Yeah, and as you as you show in the book, it's not just about writing history. These are actually participants in the political process as well. Figures like Macaulay and Seeley. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, you know, uh, Seeley's knighted by Lord Rosebery later on, and um, you know they have a lot of prestige, a lot of influence. Um, they're in the corridors of power. Um, they're popular historians. You know, Macaulay is a tremendously popular. Um, historian, um, everyone is reading his histories of, in, of, the, of England, and but at the same time he has tremendous um, institutional power and administrative power as a, both a politician in in Britain and uh, again another member of the kind of law con law council in India in the 1830s. So each of these figures has that kind of institutional power as well as clout as an intellectual. And it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because reading your book alongside uh, another book, which I'm halfway through, Richie Robertson's History of the uh, New History of the Enlightenment, it's fascinating there that Macaulay, as strictly as a historian of James II, actually emerges as quite a good historian when he's just sticking to the history. But then to read about him in his more political dimension and the conflicts between his history and the kind of the politics and the way that he sees empire. There's a, a very strange juxtaposition there. So, I mean, is the, the lesson of that that Macaulay would have been better off sticking just to the history, do you think? Well, I mean, it's more, I mean, what I find really intriguing about Macaulay is the kind of purposes he puts forward for, for why he's writing 
um, his history of England. I mean, he very much says in 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 the, in that work that you know you need to know um, about these this this history of England so that you can have pride in it. He's telling sort of his readers in the in the eighteen forties and fifties, you need to have pride in this past so that we can do great things in the present. So it's it's really all about even though it's focused on England, the scholarly work, it's all about um, sort of um, getting people to um, go along with and buy into the kind of um, providential imperial uh, ambitions that Britain has set for itself in the 19th century. So it's about England, but it's actually about, it's about England in the 17th century, but it's about Britain in the 19th century at the uh, same time. And there's often a, a sense of moral self-righteousness that goes with a lot of these figures. Again, it's interesting, mm -hmm. we had John Eikenbury on the podcast uh, last week talking about how liberal internationalism's dirty secret uh, is that it underpinned empires in the 19th century. So there's a, there seems a, an overlap with the story that you tell that, I mean, is this a, a case of a kind of high moral language underpinning a, a low hateful policy? Absolutely. I mean, the high moral language um, is is all about a civilizing mission, right? That the British presence, wherever it is, is um, going to be morally inspired and morally uplifting. Um, and there's a sort of presumption there that it's it's already a superior um, society and culture, and then that implies that all the other places that and people that it interacts with are um, lesser in some ways. So it's a deeply, deeply racist premise. And as much as it's trying to sort of project this um, moral inspiration and this almost sanctimonious <laughs> kind of attitude at times, mm. I think that's, 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 the, that's the whole uh, claim to be serving something higher. And that higher thing is history. And so then historical belief, that particular um, kind of historical belief that the future is going to vindicate things that seem um, questionable right now, that that um, that becomes enabling, right, to to all the um, you know havoc that empire wreaks. And it's 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 fascinating because as a reader we keep uh, we as, as a reader we keep reeling from the punches that on the one hand there is as you say this kind of sanctimonious kind of moral tone and yet as you keep showing time after time after time again in the book uh, in fact whatever about the experience of those living under empire imperialism has this corrupting corrosive moral effect on Britain itself. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it, um, and th there's a constant uh, fear of uh, corruption coming from abroad and that uh, whenever the British uh, err or make mistakes, it's because, um, you know, like when the British create concentration camps in Kenya in the 1950s, um, conservative politicians are saying, we're becoming like Africans, right? So it's a way of saying anytime the British err or um, kind of stray from their idealized understanding of what the empire is about, um, then that corruption is blamed on the, the subjects of empire rather than um, prompting a recognition that there's something very um, coercive and um, uh, illegitimate about imperial rule itself because it is rule without consent. 
at the end of the day. And it's it's interesting that uh, there. It seems to me there are two kinds of um, characters who emerge in the book. There there are the explicit racists, and we can we can see them a mile mm-hmm. off uh, in the book. Right. But there are also these kind of more liberal characters who actually, in in some ways, uh, emerge even worse, if that's possible, uh, in the book, because they have this idea of trusteeship. They see those that they colonize as children. Um, and that that idea is kind of part of the hypocrisy that is underpinning empire. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, it, it's sort of <laughs> it's it's the sad story um, of of um, I don't know the intellectual history of of the nineteenth and twentieth century. It's just it's really hard to. I mean, there are plenty of thinkers in that period too. You can think of someone like the unsung heroes of that time, like you know Fenner Brockway or someone like that. Um, who hardly ever gets talked about, who, who can, you know, who make you, uh, um, pause when you, when you excuse people and, and say that, oh, he's just limited by the time that he lives in, right? Like Churchill could not help but have these racist thoughts. Everyone thought that way. Or John Stuart Mill, um, you know, he was a really, um, progressive thinker. And yet he has all these racist elements to his thought. And we tend to want to forgive that as sort of, you know, he's a man of his time. But there are plenty of other thinkers uh, in this period um, that um, they would have been aware of um, who, who, who questioned uh, that kind of um, racialized thinking. Um, and so, you know, it is definitely true that people that we um, kind of hold up as icons of um, liberal thought, like John Stuart Mill, um, his thought was absolutely um, grounded in, in racist beliefs. Um, he says quite explicitly that um, yes, we want, um, uh, you know, as much freedom as possible in every society. But when there are, uh, in barbaric societies, uh, a certain amount of despotism is okay. And so he was completely um, comfortable with the idea of um, British uh, rule of India um, and other parts of the world. He was himself part of the governing bureaucracy of India until 1858. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thought. I mean, how how do you as a historian deal with that question, the C.S. Lewis question about chronological snobbery that, you know, you look back on these characters and obviously as historians, we can't just say, oh, those terrible people back then, whilst on right. the other hand, doing precisely what you said, not, not being afraid to nail things uh, and to speak even about people who very often are seen as uh, heroes, even today uh, in uh, British society and in the case of Churchill worldwide? Yeah, I mean, you, you can't sort of have a prosecutorial tone towards people in the past. I don't think we should be judging them um, and, and assuming we would have been any better. Um, it's, it's more to just understand, you know, the, the range of, you know, possibilities um, of thought in their time. You know, could someone like Churchill have thought differently. And I think we sometimes too often give him a pass. Um, but if you just even look at the structure of some of his um, defiant statements, he, you know, there's a line in my book where, you know, he says, I do not admit that a harm was done to the Aborigines of Australia by the fact that they were, you know, pretty much exterminated. Um, and that construction, I do not admit, is a contrarian phrasing, right? That means he's responding to lots of people who must be saying, no, a great harm was done, right? And that should give us pause. 
so that we don't, I mean, so we understand someone like Churchill, but we don't have to hold them up as a model or a hero, right? Um, so the goal is understanding um, always, not judgment, but um, that means, it, it, you know, we need to think about who we hold up as, as sort of exemplars and heroes of different periods. So it's the, it's the world as they saw it, the choices that they had in front of them at the time. Yeah, Churchill had other choices. He could have thought differently. Other people were thinking differently. One of the fascinating elements of the book is how you show that uh, very often it's not the historians, it's the novelists and poets uh, who turn out to be the best assessors of empire. Uh, for example, you have a, a fascinating section on Byron and the Romantics. Uh, how did they see empire? So, the, yeah, I mean, what's so fascinating is even as though, even while these um, philosophers in the 18th century are um, finding ways to defend empire by saying, well, all of this will be vindicated in the future. There are skeptics right from the beginning. And there's a recurring pattern here of the skeptical thoughts uh, coming from the mouths of poets. And it's a sort of fascinating pattern uh, to me. Um, and, you know, sort of makes you wonder, you know, what is it about poetry that, or the poetic mindset that allowed people to to question that way of thinking so often, and, and not just British poets, but also I look at poets in, in other parts of the world, especially um, South Asia. And I think what it is, is that poetry as a literary form is one that can really transcend linear um, narration, right? It's, it's, it's actually not a, a, a literary form that proceeds in linear time often, right? It can, but it often doesn't. And so with that, it, it sort of, um, it allows you to imagine uh, utopian uh, ways of being in the present. It means that you don't always have to be, it raises the possibility that you don't always have to imagine utopia as something that's coming in the future. Um, it's something that can be transcendentally available right now. And it also transcends the idea of, especially romantic poetry, I think, tried very hard to transcend the idea of um, individual uh, selfhood that was so important to Enlightenment thought. Um, and I think and you, there's a lot of kind of conversation between uh, romantic poets um, and their counterparts uh, in South Asia. I mean, the, they're reading each other, these poets, and so a lot of anti-colonial critique of um, colonialism that's coming out in poetry in South Asia starts, there's sort of a feedback loop um, back home. And so there is this kind of strand of um, anti-colonial thought that's also critical of this historical eth ethical idiom that comes out of poetry. And, and I think what, what you see in the book is that those two things come together in the 20th century when you have a few key historians who are also poets. Well, and th that's, that, yeah. was, that was one of the points that I was going to make. But there's a lovely mm -hmm. moment uh, in the book where one of the historians who uh, you admire the most, E.P. Thompson, um, you uh, reveal was in fact a poet uh, himself so that even the best historians also turn out to be the poets. Yeah, and I think he was, I mean, what, what he would say about the use of poetry is that precisely this idea that, you know, we need utopian thinking, right? Um, but we can't always be thinking that, it, um, you know, it's going to be terrible now, and we have to sort of endure misery for a very, very long time until progress finally comes, you know, at, at some end point of time. Um, we need poetry so that we can um, feel inspired right now in the present, 
And when history has, you know, a more redemptive purpose, as it does in the 20th century, when it's all about um, kind of recovering um, voices that have been lost and ways of being and ways of life that have been lost, there is a kind of poetic purpose in that kind of history, too. And, um, you know, and if you think about it, history itself as a discipline, if you go back to, you know, ancient ways of um, narrating history, it emerges from the sort of swirl of mythic poetry, whether you think of the Odyssey or you think of the Mahabharata, um, you know, it's there's a blurry line somewhere. And so, yeah, I think the more poetically informed our politics and our history writing, um, the, the more we'll get out of them. Well, I'm looking forward to your next book, which I'm hoping is going to be an epic poem. <laughs> If only I had those writing skills. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about uh, history and historians today. What's the what's the state sure. of play on the British Empire among professional historians today? Well, um, within the academy, um, there's kind of a consensus um, that you know uh, imperialism was um, one of the troubling. Um, um, sort of chapters of, of modern history and um, uh, sort of a consensus that it was an illegit illegitimate, violent, extracted, uh, extractive, uh, exploitative uh, mode of governance. But I think there's a little bit of a disconnect with kind of more popular understandings about uh, empire. And so, but I do think that lately, because of uh, conversations that have emerged around, you know, dealing with uh, the uh, colonial past, like, you know, Roads Must Fall or Black Lives Matter or Colonial Countryside or what have you, um, that's sort of pushing that dialogue between um, popular and academic understandings and shifting, shifting kind of the, the shifting that debate, I think um, more and more academic historians are are being called on to participate in that much wider public conversation. And I think there's gradually a more and more um, accurate and critical view of empire emerging in the public sphere as well. But then there's pushback against that from governing institutions, like colonial countryside is doing what it's doing and calling out the connections of national trust properties with, you know, um, colonialism or slavery. But then the, the the conservative government in power, you know, tries to silence that effort. So, you know, it's 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 a struggle, and it will remain one. But I, I definitely think that scholarly voices are helping to forward that conversation more and more. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that uh, public sphere because clearly empire is still uh, something of a minefield, as you say. Statues have been torn down, buildings have been renamed. Um, there's the new Humboldt Forum in Berlin, which displays art looted during colonialism, uh, which has also attracted criticism. Where, where do you stand uh, on the questions raised by the museum? Well, yes, I think it's um, appropriate for museums. I mean, the museum itself is a kind of institutional space that is invented during, you know, as part of the history of empire, right? This way of displaying things, collecting things, displaying things, and then inviting people to look on them. Um, that's, a, that's a practice that's born in the course of imperialism. And so, you know, and it's a legacy of empire that we have. Um, and we have to 
reinvent all of our inherited institutions um, to, to make them suit a more post-imperial world, right? And that's not going to happen unless we start to interrogate, okay, what are the sources of this collection? What is the appropriate way to exhibit them? Should we return some of these things? Should they be shared, perhaps, with other polities and museums in other places. So, but I mean, the answers are going to be different for every collection and every museum, but these are conversations that must be had. And, and in having them, like if you talk about, okay, should the Benin bronzes be returned um, to Nigeria? I mean, in, that's a question about a museum, about museum artifacts, but in, in, in having it, people will learn a lot about the British um, presence in West Africa, right? And, and history gets aired in that. And that's a huge um, public education process that, that has to happen because there's been so much amnesia for so long. Let's think about uh, history more broadly, because a lot of this book is, uh, is actually a philosophical reflection on what history actually is. Um, at, at one stage, you say that history should perform a more poetic, redemptive function. Um, explain to listeners what you mean by that. Well, um, if, if, we, if we find that, um, that the, the old idea of history that came about in the 18th century, that um, a, a sense of um, progress, a narrative of progress is unfolding, and great men are going to emerge to serve that narrative, and historians should be whispering in the ears of policymakers. If we feel like that did a lot of harm, then, which is what people started to feel after World War II especially, then the question becomes, okay, then what political purpose should history be serving? Um, and, and, and so then different kinds of answers emerge uh, for that. And one is that, well, we're, we're going to look in the past for ideas that maybe didn't work out well in their time, but that might still have value and that we can still learn from in our present. Or, so that's one redemptive kind of strategy. Another would be to say, well, we just want to find those lost and forgotten voices that got covered up because we were so focused on great men for so long, right? And that's another redemptive purpose. And a third one could be just, we want to commune with the past because we learn about ourselves and how we became the way we are and how our world became the way it is. Um, by doing that, that's like the deeply humanistic, most poetic kind of um, way of, of thinking about um, history's you know, purpose. Um, in a kind of post-imperial uh, world. Um, and so, you know, there are different ways you can think about history having serving a, a redemptive purpose. Um, but it's just the idea being that it should not be abetting um, uh, power as much and that it's, it's better, it's more appropriate, it's more useful, it's more powerful is really to um, um, speak truth to power and to be critical of uh, those in power, how, whatever the impact of that. It, it doesn't matter how effectual it is. The point is that that is the position it, it's, it's now had, especially in the academy, um, since at least the 1950s and 60s. And I think the Vietnam War also um, made that, a, a, you know, a, was a big impetus for that in the United States. And and you say that doing history is also its own kind of activism. Uh, you write mm -hmm. that it invites us to derive new values from history. Uh, mm -hmm. How do, how does that work in practice? Well, if you take for example my book, I mean, if if I'm trying to think of alternatives for 
to thinking about um, you know, history as the work of great men who are leading us on this path of progress, if I look at the ideas um, that are available to us from the past, right? What were Gandhi's ideas? What were Herbert Butterfield's ideas? What were Tolstoy's ideas? That's what I mean. What, there, there are whole different sets of values available in their ideas that we can recover and make use of and, um, uh, in our present. Right, so there's the past is in that sense just literally an archive of ideas that we that you know some some may have not um, um, you know like if you think of them as plants some of those plants haven't thrived as well today but we can go back and dig them up and find them and find the seeds and plant them again right like um, I don't know how well that metaphor turned out but that's the idea of finding new values from the past. So kind of in some ways, history as a hothouse or a greenhouse of, uh, of ideas. Yeah, and we, you want to nurture some of those ideas and not just always back the ones that um, get the loudest uh, backing already from those in power. And that, that's very different to the approach of applied history, which you've been very critical of in the past. Yeah, I kind of think, uh, <laughs> I mean, I... I feel like there's a bit of a straw man uh, in that whole debate around applied history. I mean, all history is applied history. I, I don't know what isn't applied history. Hmm. So the, I, I mean, that that argument that oh, we 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 no longer do applied history and historians have abdicated their responsibility. I don't think that's true. I just I think that historians are less often abetting power and more often critics of power. And I think that's absolutely a good thing. And that's not an abdication of responsibility. It's just a recognition of the of the of the of the the better position to be in. I mean, it's it's, it's really interesting to me because uh, one of the things that comes through all in every single page of this book is the, the idea of history and notions of truth. And uh, at one point, uh, right towards the end of the book, you say that American political culture has become a site of crisis around the very concept of truth. So, I mean, bringing things right up to date, I wonder what you as a historian make of the uh, recent events at the Capitol building and as we head towards the inauguration. Yes, it's so, it's, I feel, um, I, I, and I think I share this with some of my my friends and colleagues in the profession. You're reaching for all kinds of you know. Um, you're reaching into that archive of the past to to try and understand what's going on. And obviously, the people who engaged in those events, that attack on the Capitol, were were also acting with certain a certain sense of history, right? That's why you see Confederate flags there and things like that, or Camp Auschwitz T-shirts. I mean, there are all kinds of. Um, narratives about the past, bad narratives about the past that, are, that, that they're um, kind of using in, to, to justify their own actions. And then people who watch it unfold are, are trying to make sense of it from history too. But I mean, I, for me, it's just uh, the, the kind of the most helpful uh, idea for me is to, to just recall that, um, you know, we never kind of gave up on liberal empire. And I think that's why there's been so much forgetting about the harms of the British Empire. Uh, and, the, you know, and I think the Cold War really made it hard <laughs> for the West to give up on liberal empire. Um, and instead, we became more and more committed to those ideas. And I think what, what we're seeing now is sort of just like in the 1920s and 30s, a kind of um, these kind of far right extremist uh, thoughts that are sort of bred in the context of liberal empire. 
I mean, this is an argument that an anti-colonial thinker like Aimé Césaire, you know, the Martinican uh, thinker and poet also, and playwright also, made, you know, back in 1950, right, that um, liberal empire is, is, is going to create, bear this like monstrous fruit, right? And I think what we're seeing here, you can tell from the involvement of veterans of the war on terror, you know, in, in that movement. Um, and, you know, that, that's my understanding, but I, I mean, it's something that's so much, you know, it's unfolding in front of our eyes. Um, so, and I, I also think that it's a, our failure for a long time to deal with the legacies of empire and slavery that has also emboldened some of the kind of more white supremacist elements in that movement. So that's all just to say it's 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 so um, we're so belated and it is so urgent to 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 really come to terms with that past and and make different kinds of futures possible. And at, at the end of the book, essentially, it seems to me you're making a plea for active inquiry. You remind us that the original root of the word history uh, is a verb, not a noun. It has this kind of active quality uh, to it. Uh, you come full circle in a lovely way, actually, that uh, by going back to the Enlightenment and reminding us that the original model of, for the Enlightenment was, again, this sense of active inquiry. So that, that seems to encapsulate what you've done in this book and what you think the role of the historian should be? Yes, it does. I mean, I think it's just to always question and want to learn. And it's, it's, it's humanism, all the humanistic disciplines are ultimately about understanding what it is to be human and that sort of self-discovery. And, um, and that's something, you know, that you also feel and experience when you engage in any kind of um, democratic process, like, you know, you feel it, you know, whether you're, when, when you're reading poetry, and you also feel it when you go out and join a march, right? And, and I, I think these are connected things. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that is, that is, should, I think, the core of the, the discipline or the spirit of the discipline is to inquire. So the book is Time's Monster, How History Makes History. It's written by my guest, Priya Satya, and published by Harvard University Press. But for now, Priya, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you so much again for having me. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying... Thanks for listening.